Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Tim Malabin. Tim is the CEO of Ann Arbor, Michigan-based Esperion Therapeutics. Esperion is bucking a few of the trends you've seen in biotech the past decade. It has developed a cholesterol-lowering drug, bempedoic acid. The drug is currently under review by regulators in the U.S. and Europe, as of this recording. It is expected to be cleared for sale in 2020, likely on its own, and in a combo form with generic Azetamib, once known under Merck's brand name Zetia. Instead of aiming the new Asperion drug at a targeted niche of patients with a rare disease or certain genetic characteristics, the popular thing over the past decade, this is a drug being aimed at the masses who have high LDL cholesterol and are at high risk of heart attack, stroke, and death from cardiovascular causes. Asperion's entering a crowded marketplace here. On one end are the cheap, convenient, generic, orally available statins. These drugs were once Big Pharma's bread and butter. On the other end, with a greater ability to bring down LDL cholesterol, but also with higher brand name price tags, are the PCSK9-directed antibody drugs. The overpricing of the PCSK9 class was a disaster, which I anticipated in a column back in 2012. Asperion has studied that cautionary tale of overreach and has sought to learn from it. Heading into the 2020s, how does Asperion seek to carve out a niche for itself and compete, if not uh, the same way the PCSK9s did? It does have a different scientific mechanism than others in its class, but that's not the main feature. The big idea, wait for it, is by offering a potent brand name drug at a low price, at least by today's standards. It's best to listen to Tim explain his thinking on price, which he does toward the end of the show. But without giving too much away, he believes it's the right thing to do for patients and for society. It's also going to allow Asperion to make money and reward its investors. All of these goals can be achieved simultaneously. And maybe just maybe, this is a drug that could even compete in a new world governed by something like Medicare for All. But before we go into all of that, you'll hear about Tim's personal journey. He's not a scientist. He encountered some real life challenges to get where he is today. Clearly, some of the values he picked up early in life have an influence on the decisions he and Asperion are making today. Now, before we start the episode, I'd like to tell you about the sponsor of The Long Run. Precision Nanosystems is lowering the barriers to developing gene and advanced therapies. Precision Nanosystems is a global leader in technology and solutions for developing RNA, DNA, CRISPR, and small molecule drugs, rapidly taking ideas to patients. In working with over 100 biopharmaceutical companies globally, Precision Nanosystems' expertise and proprietary technology is at the heart of many of the leading gene therapies under development today. Precision Nanosystems' nanomedicine development and manufacturing platform and reagents provide outstanding reducibility, versatility, and scalability with an intuitive workflow that requires no prior expertise. Precision Nanosystems can partner with you to bring your programs to patients successfully. To learn more about Precision Nanosystems, please visit precisionnanosystems.com. And are you a marquee service provider eager to get your name out in front of the biotech leaders who listen to the long run? Stephanie Barnes can tell you about sponsorship opportunities. 
find her on the contact page on TimmermanReport.com. And if you haven't already, now is a good time to subscribe to Timmerman Report. But before you do, take a look at the testimonials page. You'll see industry leaders who have subscribed since the beginning in 2015. As Bob Nelson of Arch Venture Partners put it, quote, Timmerman is always ahead of the game, end quote. So what are you waiting for? Go to TimmermanReport.com and hit the green button that says subscribe. Groups that meet certain conditions are eligible for discounts. Ask me, Luke at TimmermanReport.com. Now please join me and Tim Malibin on The Long Run. Tim Malibin, welcome to The Long Run. Thank you, Luke. So very pleased to be here with you. Good to talk to you again. Well, now this is a really interesting time for us to catch up. As uh, listeners may or may not know, Esperion Therapeutics, uh, your company there in greater Detroit area, Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, you're, you're coming up on your Prescription Drug User Fee Act for your, um, your, your drug bepidoic acid and a fixed-dose combination with azetamide for um, lowering cholesterol. And this is going to be a big new uh, – well, this is your first product – uh, for your company, and it's a, a new kind of entrant into the cholesterol-lowering market. Um, so uh, a whole lot going on, I'm sure. So thank you for taking a little time out of your busy schedule uh, as you get ready for that big moment in 2020. Yeah, you know, this is, as you said, it's it's uh, an exciting time. I have been at this for almost a decade now and have colleagues that have been at it even longer. And, you know, we feel very blessed to be so close to at least the initial finish line here, as you mentioned, the, the PDUFA dates that are upcoming, uh, but even more so uh, the commercial effort that, that we're already preparing for and look forward to with approval getting the the drugs in the hands of physicians and patients so so we can really begin to help people. So that's, I think at the end of the day, that's that's what this is all about. All right. Well, we'll get into all of that as the show goes on. But as you know, as a listener, Tim, uh, th- this show is very simple. Uh, I like to talk about who you are and what you do. <laughs> and, and there's a bridge okay. between the two. So let's just start off very simple. Um, where'd you grow up? Where are you from? Yep. So I, um, I'm a Midwestern guy. I think, uh, you know, I like to tell people I, I grew up in the Midwest. I've got Midwestern values. Uh, when I say the Midwest, it's a little bit broad. I was born in Covington, Kentucky, lived uh, initially right across the river in Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, spent a number of, of uh, years primarily in Minnesota. And uh, I know not too far from where you grew up in in Wisconsin, uh, but then found my way to Michigan for what we in Minnesota called the other U of M, the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, and uh, got my degree in business, um, started my career, and uh, just to fast forward through the early parts of my career, I... Well, actually, Tim, actually, hold on for a second. Oh, let's, let's back up a little. I, I want to ask about some okay. of that early, <laughs> those early influences. Uh, Kentucky and then Cincinnati, you're growing up. Did, uh, what did your parents do for a living? Yeah, my dad was a, a teacher, uh, started out as a high school teacher, became a professor, and... Uh, we moved around a little bit growing up, so uh, spent actually a couple of years in, um, in uh, Rhode Island uh, while he was getting one of his degrees, but um, that was um, not much time compared to, like I said, we spent most of our time in 
uh, Minnesota, uh, maybe a year okay, teacher, in Michigan while I was growing teacher, up. Teacher, professor, what what kind of subject? Uh, business. Uh, my dad taught business. Oh, okay. So uh, was uh, um, was this like a big part of your upbringing, like thinking about business strategy even when you're a kid, like hanging around with dad? No, you know, um, so that's a, that's a super interesting question. So, you know, my dad was a, was a college professor, um, but most of, you know, most of my life growing up, he was earning his degrees. So, um, you know, uh, obviously got his undergraduate degree, but then um, I was born um, shortly after I was the uh, second oldest in my family. We have six kids, uh, grew up Catholic, um, so that explains some of it. And, um, but, um, um, you know, my dad was, um, getting his master's degree and then his, uh, his PhD or doctorate and, uh, of course, writing his thesis and, uh, defending his thesis and all of that. And that's what I mostly remember growing up. And then one of the things that, that, my, that sounds my dad, like you didn't, you didn't have a lot of money growing up, like large family, <laughs> uh, dads teach or learning, uh, going to school, <laughs> We definitely knew the value of a dollar. That's uh, that's for sure. And uh, and of course, you know, our family, again, maybe like a lot of Catholic families, um, the oldest was ten years older than the youngest. And so my sister and I, who were the oldest, uh, uh, took care of the younger kids, and uh, or at least helped take care of the younger kids. My mom was was a stay at home mom, but um, but with six kids, you know, it's uh, it's every every man on deck. And then, you know, we also had a garden growing up. That was a big feature of, of life growing up that we, we grew vegetables and, uh, and whatnot during the summertime, had to tend the garden, had to harvest the garden, not glamorous work. Um, but, uh, and then of course, you well, know, you as learned, soon as- You learn some responsibility that way. I mean, taking care of your youngest siblings for one, but you know, taking care of a garden, you know, if you, uh, if you slack off for a while, the weeds grow, <laughs> right? You don't have as much no, uh, sure. there, there to, to harvest at the end. So like you develop work habits around uh, uh, totally. da daily and, habits. Yeah, and, uh, and then, you know, early on uh, uh, got a paper route, um, you know, as much out of uh, necessity as anything else. Uh, went to Catholic schools, but um, our, our family wasn't well enough off to afford tuition for schools. So uh, they had what was called a summer work-study program. And, um, and so uh, my siblings and I, we all you know, the deal was, uh, one, you're not going to public school. That was the edict. Um, two, we can't afford to send you to Catholic school, so you're going to have to help, uh, which meant we had to work um, over the summer at school. So it was uh, cleaning floors, polishing floors, um, moving classrooms around, uh, you know, helping teachers as they were coming back uh, from the summer to put their classrooms in order. Uh, again, not very glamorous work, but um, helps. That's all right. What what, the, um, what 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 age are we talking about here, Tim? Um, so I think started when I was about uh, twelve years old. That uh, we were working over the summer, and then through through the time that I graduated from from high school in uh, uh, when I was eighteen. So all through interesting, so almost seven eight years. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, this uh, you have a lot of commonality here with uh, with this farm kid from Wisconsin. Um, okay, so so you, um, how did you uh, get interested in business, or did you get interested in in science, like in high school? Did, was there any inkling that you'd end up going into biotech at, in those years? No, you know. So uh, interesting journey. So I graduated uh, again, like lots of kids. I graduated from high school when I was eighteen. Um, didn't know what I wanted to do. So my dad was teaching at the University of Minnesota at Mankato. It was called Mankato State University at the time. This is in southeastern Minnesota, and uh, went uh, completed my first year of school there. Um, was still a little bit aimless. And at the beginning of the second year of college, my dad had a massive heart attack at 48 um, and died. Um, so oh, wow. uh, that was a life-changing event for me and, and actually for, for my family as well, because I, I still had three younger sisters at home. Uh, uh, had a younger brother uh, at home as well, who was about to start college. And then, um, you know, my mom was, uh, was widowed at a, at a very young age. I think she was uh, younger than my dad. She was about 41 years old when he passed away. Um, so I, I actually quit school when, uh, when my dad passed away, moved back home to help my mom and, and younger sisters uh, sort of get through that first difficult year. You know, there was his estate to settle. There was uh, insurance. There was um, trying to figure out, obviously, the Social Security thing. Um, but, um, you know, again, just, you know, a, a, a fair amount of responsibility for someone who was pretty young. And um, but I, you know, got my mom and the sisters on their feet. And then um, rather than going back to school at uh, at uh in Mankato, I had decided that what I needed to do was uh, figure out how to make a living because I obviously wasn't going to get any help from my parents, uh, my family. Um, and uh, so at that point, um, decided that I was going to move to Ann Arbor. I had read a lot about the University of Michigan, um, applied uh, and was fortunate to, to get accepted. Um, so after a year at Mankato State University, moved to um, moved to Ann Arbor, um, went to school, uh, got my. This is degree. all as an undergraduate, right, Tim? That's that's right, right. As a as and an what, undergrad. What had, what had you read about University of Michigan that drew you there? Yeah, you know, so it was I think the in the top five business schools for undergraduates at the time. And I, you know, what I was most interested in doing at that time was, you know, as I mentioned, figuring out how to make a living. And I, I don't know where, you know, Luke, if you were to ask me, I don't know where the idea came from. Uh, it may have been, you know, just from conversations with my dad over the years, but um, I, I decided that I was going to be a, a CPA. I could you know, become a professional accountant, if you will. Didn't really know what that meant. I didn't have any mentors that were that were CPAs or anything, anybody that was running a practice or working at one of the big firms. But um, I decided that I needed to figure out a way to be able to make, you know, make my own way in the world and, and thought that that was through business and, and through accounting. When I originally went to Michigan, um, you know, one of the things that you learn early on when you're taking your undergraduate business courses or initial business courses is, uh, you know, accounting is described as the language of business. And if you 
if you can understand accounting, um, then you know opens up a lot of uh, doors and a lot of understanding. So uh, it was really trying to understand what business was all about at uh, at a really fundamental level. So uh, got my degree in uh, I think it was 1984 and uh, started at one of the big the big accounting firms and uh, it was. Uh, <laughs> It was not the thing that I loved, <laughs> so did that uh-huh. for a few years. How long did you How long did you stay in accounting? So I was there for five years, and uh, I, you know, I was ready to. I mean, I was more than ready to leave after after three years, but um, it, it took another couple of years before I finally said, you know, this this is enough. I don't want to keep doing this. Um, I wanted. Okay, to so do, by now you're you're getting into your mid to late twenties, and you're still kind of tr- figuring out what you're going to do. Haven't really yeah. settled on a path just yet. Um, what happened next? Yeah, so I, I joined. So I, I, I interviewed at a lot of places um, as I was uh, leaving accounting, and um, I, I I met this uh, met this company that was working in technology. Uh, there was a lot of technology companies in the Ann Arbor area, and it, it was a small venture backed company. So. In you know, in very short order, I got I got very attracted to venture capital and um, risk based investing and technology and you know doing something that hadn't existed before. So I think uh, joined this very small. It was uh, I think we had about twenty five people at this company. They needed a finance person, and I joined and. Um, I, I loved it. You know, it was. Okay. uh, So there's a, there's a culture clash here. I can imagine big accounting firm, you know, has its way of doing things. Uh, small startup, it's move fast. It's do or die, uh, create something new. I mean, it sounds like you kind of caught the cultural bug. I I sure did. I, you know, again, I, I think, you know, one of the things that I, I didn't really like at the big accounting firm was that it was so process oriented. It wasn't, it wasn't clear, that <clears throat> excuse me, anything that we were doing was you know really of value. Um, you know, you um, it was difficult to measure your contribution. Uh, it was difficult to to have a sense of responsibility for you know for what you were doing, and you know it was kind of a stiff you know relatively stiff place. And you know at least by comparison with a very entrepreneurial venture backed technology company, so. Um, it, it, and you, you know, come into this situation with a, uh, a, a valuable and marketable skill, which I would imagine, I mean, every company needs it. Uh, and they probably didn't have a whole lot of other people that knew how to do this. <laughs> so that, you, right. you could make, so, your, you could make yourself right. useful. Yep, exactly. Okay. And, um, and it was, uh, you know, a place again, where I could, I could feel like I was contributing that, uh, people sought out my advice on, you know, business or finance issues and, you know, I felt like, you know, part of a small team, even if I wasn't the engineer, I wasn't the technologist, um, I felt like I was helping, helping do that. So, um, you know, it was Okay, it was now let's, let's fast experience. forward a little bit. Let's fast forward a little here, Tim. Uh, how did you end up getting in touch with the first Asperian Therapeutics? Yeah, so, uh, so um, we sold the first company that I was with um, after I had been there for five, I think almost six years. And I went to, um, immediately went to another small software company. And 
um, in a matter of about a year and a half, we um, that business was also acquired by a larger technology company. And um, in the middle of 1997, uh, Roger Newton um, was introduced, or I was introduced to Roger Newton, who, um, for those of you that may not know, Roger was the was the co-discoverer and product champion uh, for a drug called Lipitor or Atorvastatin, uh, the most successful statin or LDL cholesterol-lowering drug in history. And um, he had just recently left Park Davis Warner Lambert and was starting the, the first Spurion. This is, like I said, in mid-1997. Roger and I met in a small restaurant uh, for breakfast downtown Ann Arbor. Uh, we really hit it off and... Um, you know, Roger became the the science guy, and I was the business guy for this brand new venture back company that was called Aspirion in in uh, late 1997. And what was Roger? Uh, now he was leaving Park Davis. Uh, he had already done all this work on Atorvastatin. Uh, he, uh, he, what was the idea for the new Aspirion? He had some assets that uh, maybe Pfizer didn't want. No, you know, so interestingly, uh, Oak, Oak Investment Partners, which is, of course, one of the one of the premier venture capital firms, especially at that time in healthcare or in biotech. So they had found some assets uh, from Pharmacia. Uh, so Pharmacia uh, was, of course, a Swedish based uh, pharmaceutical company. And the the program was called APOA1 Milano. It was a um, uh, APOA1 is the largest protein in HDL, the good cholesterol, HDL cholesterol, the good cholesterol. And the idea was that, that you could take APOA1, in this case, a derivative called APOA1 Milano, um, infuse it into, into a patient and reverse their atherosclerosis. So of course, LDL cholesterol uh, bad cholesterol, um, atorvastatin was a drug that uh, inhibited HMG reductase, which is an enzyme on the cholesterol biosynthesis pathway. And it, it wasn't so much about um, reversing cholesterol as it was about stopping the further accumulation of cholesterol. With the idea about APOA1 Milano and HDL cholesterol, it was let's, let's use the good cholesterol to actually turn back the clock to reverse the accumulation of cholesterol in, in of course, the, the, the arteries. So that, that was the idea. We ended up with uh, four, total of five programs in HDL. So Aspirion, the original Aspirion was all about HDL cholesterol and programs to, to um, reverse atherosclerosis. And Roger, being the science guy, uh, he... Uh, he sold you on this. Like, uh, was there anything like part of your personal background? I mean, you mentioned this, you had this family history. I mean, I don't know if it's family so it history, really but that thing happened to your dad. Yeah, it was really about the family history. I mean, from the time that Roger and I first met, I, I was smitten with the idea of being able to do something about cardiovascular disease because my dad had died of a heart attack. He had died of the accumulation of, of uh, fat in his arteries, cholesterol in his arteries, and that resulted in a blockage that eventually broke off and you know, went to his heart and killed him. And, um, and, and the thought that I, as a non-scientist, a non-physician, might be able to help Roger and, and uh, all of the people, all the scientists that we, 
we hired to, to make a difference uh, in, in patients' lives, to come up with a new therapy that, that was, I, I thought there was nothing better in the world that I could be doing. So Roger was the CEO and uh, what was your job? Were you the number two from early on? Right. So I started out as CFO and then a couple of years in became chief operating officer. And but, you know, Roger and I were essentially alter egos. Um, he he was the science guy. He taught me everything. I like to say he taught me everything that I know about science. And, and I was the guy who was going to the bookstore buying you know, genomics for dummies, biology for dummies, you know, because my last science class, Luke, was was uh, sophomore biology, sophomore biology yeah, but in Roger, high school. Roger's a pretty good tutor if you want to learn about cardiovascular <laughs> disease <laughs> right. and, and biology. Right. Okay. Right. And then, so, so and then I was teaching him about business. Right, right. So you guys had a good complementary relationship. Um, he's out there, you know, you're, you're raising money together, you're building the company, moving through clinical development, learning the ropes of biotech here. Uh, I guess this would have been, you know, late 90s, early 2000s. And then one day you get acquired by Pfizer. All right. I, I don't know if it was Pfizer then. I guess it was yeah, Pfizer. No, then. it was. Yeah, it was Pfizer. Um, and that was for the HDL um, increasing. Um, product, which, um, well, people believed in that a lot at the time. It didn't actually pan out. No, not at all. Okay. So this is about 2003 though, but I mean, at that time, it's a big acquisition. It's over a billion dollars from Pfizer. Um, this is, this is great. Um, everybody's happy. Uh, now I don't want to spend a lot of time. You, you went on some detours then for a while. You, you, um, uh, did a couple of other companies, right? Yeah, so I uh, so briefly, so I became a professional board member for uh, a few years. I think I ended up over the course of two or three years um, joining eight or ten different boards. Um, ultimately, found that uh, dis- dissatisfying because I wanted to, you know, I wanted to be working at a company. I wanted to be doing something, and so um, for for a short time was at a company called Nighthawk Radiology, which was a teleradiology business. It was a service, you know, healthcare services business. Um, but um, after after about a year and a half, decided that that really wasn't what I liked to do. Uh, got back into the therapeutic space at a company called Astrum Biosciences, which was working on a on therapies for cardiovascular disease again. Um, and um, did that for a few years, um, in both cases as either president or CEO. And then I had joined the board of Aspirion in 2009 of the new Aspirion because Roger had, had pulled the old Aspirion assets out of Pfizer in 2008 with the help of Jeff Kindler, who was the CEO of Pfizer at the time, and John Lamatina, who was the president of R&D at Pfizer. And so we started Spurion in in 2008. And then, like I said, I joined Roger on the board in 2009. I had been doing some consulting with him um, to help him not only uh, get the company started, um, hire the team, um, but also look at perhaps some other assets that we might want to in license. And so what was um, the what was the rationale for starting or or starting up a new Aspirion. Was this just one of these where, you know, the acquiring company has its eye on 
you know, an asset or two and is just everything else gets lost in the shuffle and a portfolio review and somebody like a scientific champion like a Roger Newton says, no, no, no. I mean, we really want to keep developing these things. Was it one of those or was there something else going on? I think it was something else, Luke. So, you know, as I look back, so um, in 2006, uh, Pfizer was working on a drug called torcetrapib. And torcetrapib, again, was an HDL raising drug. And John Lamatina describes being in the shower on a Saturday, getting a phone call from one of his colleagues, um, telling him that the torcetrapib phase three program was being shut down by the external DSMB uh, for futility or for having having some uh, some safety issues. So uh, Pfizer then announced in 2007 that they were getting out of all cardiovascular R&D. And, and for that, those who don't remember Torcetrapib, this was uh, over a billion dollars of investment uh, down the drain. <laughs> uh, lots and lots of attention in the investment community was fixated on it. Pfizer stock tanked. I mean, it was a big deal. It was a debacle. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and again, you know, the science behind it certainly looked promising, but... In, in practice, you know, in pragmatic, you know, the clinical trial that, uh, or trials that were run, um, they, they, they just failed. And, and to Pfizer's credit, you know, they didn't try to data dredge. They, you know, they just said, look, this did not work out. But, you know, the impact was broad. As you said, you know, they invested over a billion dollars in the program. And, and, and so, you know, they couldn't afford to continue to invest at that level. And, it was a stinging defeat, if you will, for the cardiovascular group there, cardiometabolic group, I think they called it. And so as often happens in these larger companies, the, the resources then were devoted to other therapeutic areas, which would be lesser risk, you know, have lower risk and, and perhaps um, higher probability of success. So, um, so as a result, Pfizer uh, was not going to work anymore in cardiovascular R&D. Of course, they still had a very active portfolio of marketed product products in the CV space, including Lipitor, which would go on to become a $13 billion a year colossus. I mean, it was a massive success. Uh, Lipitor but, was still riding high at the peak sales, but you know you could see the day when the patent expiration was coming. Pfizer needed to have something to keep going, and this wasn't it. <laughs> they didn't really have something that they could point to and tell the investment community, like, hey, we've got the thing that's going to replace Lipitor. Um, so they pulled a plug. That's right. That's right. But out of out of that failure, of course, Roger, you know, Roger is the I would say the classic entrepreneur out of out of failure, he saw opportunity and the opportunity that he saw was Pfizer saying, I'm you know, we're getting out of cardiovascular R&D. And Roger saw an opportunity to ask for the old Esperion assets back. And uh, over the it took a year, it took a year. Uh, but, you know, Roger is persistent. Um, he is pers uh, perseverant. And, um, and he eventually convinced uh, John Lamatina, others within Pfizer, that, that he could do something with uh, the old Asperion assets. And from a business standpoint, Pfizer saw the merits in putting those assets into the hands of the original, the original founder and um, uh, entrepreneur. So 
they sold the assets to Roger and uh, a group of venture capitalists in April of 2008. And uh, we were off and running. And the, the asset, the primary asset that they sold was an IP estate that at the time we called ETC 1002, which is now, of course, what we call bempedoic acid. But that was, you know, the start okay. of it was in 2008. So you get a, a phone call then from Roger, like basically, um, hey, let's get the band back together again. I, I like working with you, Tim. Can you come help me out? Um, that was exactly what happened, Luke. And, and it wasn't one phone call because I was reluctant to, quote unquote, get the band back together. And, you know, again, so the broader context was, I think, as you described, Torcetropib had just failed within the last year or so. Um, two, Lipitor, as you were describing earlier, was on its way to becoming this uh, massive success as an LDL cholesterol-lowering drug. And it was not obvious to anybody but Roger that the world needed another oral LDL cholesterol-lowering drug with a non-statin mechanism of action. You know, I'll put that as bluntly as, uh, as that. It just was not obvious. So I was... I was reluctant, I, you know, from a business standpoint, I said, you know, Roger, what, you know, who's going to, who's going to use this? And, and, you know, to Roger's credit, you know, Roger, um, I always said, had in, tremendous instincts about these things. And he said, you know, I don't know right now, but, you know, let's work on this and we'll figure it out. And literally, Luke, within a couple of years, what became obvious was, oh my gosh, statins are great drugs for 80 to 90% of the people that take them. And of course, Roger had helped discover and develop the most successful statin. But what was needed were convenient oral non-statin LDL cholesterol-lowering drugs. And there were none on the horizon, partly because the statins had been so successful that that people weren't really thinking about the 10 to 20% of patients who were not getting good results with statins or could not take them. You know, there were, there were tolerability issues with, with taking statins, muscle pain, muscle weakness, increases in HbA1c. Um, so um, that, that, that was really what, uh, what happened there. I was, I was a reluctant contributor, but I came back because I really did like working with Roger and we worked so well together that, you know, that, that overcame my initial doubts. And then, and then I became a believer. Now, how far along were these assets in development? I can imagine they were at various stages, but the one that became your lead, bempedoic acid, we call it now, um, uh, had this been tested like in mice or had it actually entered clinical trials? Did you have any no, idea of right. what the mechanism might be? So in 2008, when we got it back, um, it had been tested in mice. Um, but it had uh, no IND-enabling studies completed. So when we got it back, we immediately had to start the IND-enabling studies, the non-clinical non, um, uh, studies. And then uh, we didn't actually know how it worked. We didn't know what the mechanism of action was. And that, that would end up taking almost five years to, to elucidate the mechanism of action. Of course, now today we can say it's an ACL inhibitor or an inhibitor of ATP citrate lyase. And the, and the magic of that, the serendipity of it really is that that enzyme, ATP citrate lyase, 
is on the same cholesterol biosynthesis pathway as HMG-CoA reductase, which is the enzyme target of statins. And you know, physicians are incredibly familiar with the cholesterol synthesis pathway. Regulators are very familiar with the cholesterol synthesis pathway. So it's it's that familiarity with the pathway combined with the differentiation of the different enzyme that has, has really been a blessing for, for this molecule, for this program. Precision Nanosystems is lowering the barriers to developing gene and advanced therapies. Precision Nanosystems is a global leader in technology and solutions for developing RNA, DNA, CRISPR, and small molecule drugs, rapidly taking ideas to patients. In working with over 100 biopharmaceutical companies globally, Precision Nanosystems' expertise and proprietary technology is at the heart of many of the leading gene therapies under development today. Precision Nanosystems' nanomedicine development and manufacturing platform and reagents provide outstanding reducibility, versatility, and scalability with an intuitive workflow that requires no prior expertise. Precision Nanosystems can partner with you to bring your programs to patients successfully. To learn more, please visit precisionnanosystems.com. So there was a lot of uncertainty in these early days, as you describe it. Um, but, you know, I suppose that you, with Roger and you, I mean, you had um, a track record, uh, which probably helped raise capital uh, to get you through those uncertain years, those lean years, when you're trying to both articulate the mechanism and, you know, move the ball further along in clinical development. So, um you know, you can demonstrate some value that brings in more investment. That's right. Um, I would say, uh, you know, again, just as further context, you know, keep in mind that the Great Recession started in the fall of 2008. Uh, so we had we had raised the initial round from a, a group of four venture investors in the spring of 2008. The Great Recession hit, of course, the entire U.S., maybe even more broadly across the world. Um, but then for, for biotech, of course, you know, that, that Great Recession lasted, uh, what, four years. You know, it was... Yeah, 2012, you know, it, 2013. <laughs> right. So, so, you know, we had raised an initial $30 million, but $30 million you know, is, I don't think was ever meant to last five years. (laughs) And, um, but we made it, we made it last that long. Uh, We finally closed our second round, our B round in early 2013. And then we took the company public in June of 2013. But getting from that initial round to to the, uh, the to the B round was very challenging because the the backdrop the economic backdrop was just so poor and there was there had been a real exodus from biotech investing over in particular that time from 2010 to as you were saying early 2013. 
So you went public right when the window was beginning to open up, and basically it's been open ever since. Um, this has been a great biotech bull run in those years since. Uh, but you still had some of those lingering questions about this space. You know, there were all these statins out there, lots of them. Uh, they were very effective, getting cholesterol down on average, you know, 30-some percent. Pretty good safety profile. You know, you had some people who couldn't tolerate them, but it wasn't thought to be a whole lot. Um, these were all going to go generic. So like a, a lot of investors probably thought, well, <laughs> still, uh, what's the rationale here? Why should I, um, get, get involved? But you guys kept moving the, moving the ball forward. And eventually you came to, you got through, um, you got your mechanism, you got some data. Now let's talk a little bit about what you've learned in the clinic and with the money that you've been able to raise. You got a product profile that compares, how would you say with the statins? Yeah, so you know, I would say product profile-wise, we we have a drug first of all that is oral once daily, and you know the reason I start the product profile description there is because atherosclerosis, of course, is an asymptomatic disease. You know, we always try to remind people you don't feel bad if you have atherosclerosis. You don't feel bad until you have that that seminal event or sentinel event, the, the heart attack. And, um, and, you know, if you're fortunate, you have a heart attack and you survive, unlike, you know, so my dad, of course, had that sentinel event and didn't survive. That's less common today than it used to be, um, but, it, but it still happens. And so with, a, with an asymptomatic disease, it is so important if you want to change behaviors to just make it convenient. And when I say change behaviors, I mean, get people to take a medicine that will help them over the long term avoid one of these events. You hope will avoid one of these events. And um, you know, LDL cholesterol lowering has been shown to help lower, well, not only lowering cholesterol, but in, in, um, in many outcome studies, uh, lowering LDL cholesterol has, has been shown to reduce cardiovascular events. Our, our drug hasn't yet shown that, but we have a, a large study ongoing to do that. But, um, well, this is where um, LDL cholesterol, it's a surrogate endpoint. It's supposed to give us an interim measure of success. We believe if you right. lower the cholesterol right. by a certain amount, well, then by naturally you're going to see a decrease in some of those bad downstream outcomes like heart attack, stroke, and death. Um, and, and you are running, I know, a long-term outcome study, which will give us that answer. Um, but let's just talk. So, so you've got in terms of a product here, you got an oral once daily uh, bempedoic acid. You've also combined it with uh, Zetia, Zetamib. Uh, yeah. And um, you're actually seeing LDL cholesterol lowering in your phase three trials around. It's a little bit more than statins. Not a lot, but, you know, in the 30 to 40 percent reduction range. Correct. That's, that's right. Up to so with the fixed dose combination, we see LDL cholesterol lowering of uh, almost 40, 45 percent. And um, and then, you know, the other thing that um, that we like to highlight is, of course, there's been renewed interest in the inflammation aspects of of uh, atherosclerosis. So it's not just about the cholesterol, but it's also about the inflammation. There was a, a recent study you may have seen coming out of AHA demonstrating once again that if you lower inflammation in patients, you can reduce their cardiovascular events. That's the second 
study that has demonstrated that over the last couple of years. So our drug also lowers HSCRP like a statin. HSCRP is a, a key marker of inflammation. And again, uh, up to about 45% is, is the amount that our drug lowers HSCRP. The other thing and the that inflammation would, people think yeah. is what causes the plaques on the arterial walls to bust loose. And when they bust loose, well that's said. when you get a heart, a heart attack right. or a stroke. Yes, that's, um, that's very well said. Okay, so you um, and you've got this data set from something like four phase threes at this point. Yes, four published phase in the New England threes. Journal of Medicine. New England Journal and JAMA, so uh, definitely top tier, top tier medical publications. And and then of course you know we've presented them. We um, KOLs have presented these data at the top uh, medical cardiovascular meetings. So ACC. American College of Cardiology, the American Heart Association, and the European Society of Cardiology meeting, we, we have all had, or we've had presentations of all of our phase three studies there. Okay, so um, we're talking about a 10-year-long journey here now at Aspirion. At some point, Roger decides to move upstairs. You become the CEO. Um, you've been there for quite a while now, overseeing this clinical development pathway. But about halfway well, uh, along, uh, a huge con- uh, bit of context occurs, changes the whole landscape, and that is the PCSK9 story. Um how, for those who are not familiar, how would you describe how that changed the world for Aspirion? Um, so, you know, it's interesting. So um, I think there's been an ebb and a flow. So the PCSK9 is, of course, attracted tremendous attention. It's, it's, um, it is a beautiful scientific story that, um, that has evolved over the years very quick from discovery of PCSK9 and PCSK9 inhibition uh, genetically to, um, to a drug or drugs in the case of both Proloint and Repatha. Um, but I think, um, and, and we think these are wonderful therapies. They're, of course, uh, biologics, they're monoclonal antibodies, they're injectable therapies. And so they are, I think they are great great therapies. Um, but, you know, we, we refer to them as specialty medicines. And I think most physicians now refer to them as specialty medicines. So for, you're probably aware that um, there are genetically defined patient populations that have uh, genetically very high cholesterol levels. So um, they're referred to as uh, homozygous FH patients and heterozygous FH patients who have naturally very high, dangerously high levels of cholesterol. And we have long argued that the PCSK9s should be used for these very high need patient populations. So, um, as And you that know, is where they, they, they were studied in those areas. Amgen and Regeneron, they really put a ton of resources into these programs. Uh, they were seeing cholesterol, LDL cholesterol lowering on the order of 60, 65%. It was really, really striking on top of statins. I mean, it was, um, considered by many, just a great biology story, like, uh, but also the, the clinical data was about as good as it gets really excited people. Um, and, and, but then the question became who are, uh, is appropriate to receive yes, it because right. statins again were going generic. They're dirt cheap now and they're super effective. 
Um, but there's all these sort of statin intolerant and, you know, a few of these genetically high cholesterol patients who would clearly need it. Um, but uh, the, the question became, you know, could this thing, could these drugs go more mainstream? And, and a lot of people on Wall Street thought yes. They thought, you know, if, if a little bit of cholesterol lowering is good, 60 um, percent has got to be even better. Uh, so, uh, you know, maybe these could be multi-billion dollar drugs. Uh, but it didn't play out that way in the market. Well, you know, so, right. So they had the great misfortune, the, the PCSK9 sponsors had the great misfortune timing wise of coming right after the introduction of the HCV therapies from Gilead that uh, were um, very difficult. I, I think it's been, a lot has been written about this, uh, very difficult on the payer and PBM budgets. And so uh, it, it appears, and, and again, a lot has been written about this, that the PCSK9 suffered from having a very high price, of having this inconvenient biweekly injectable dosing, and, and, and then real lack of payer support for paying for what could be you know, very expensive therapies, very expensive chronic therapies that, as you said, the, the investment community seemed to have very high hopes for, whereas payers had uh, very low expectations for because of the very high prices that were originally put on these uh, specialty the, medicines. The payers, to take the payers' side for a second, they were scared that they were going to end up spending 10 or $15 billion a year on these drugs, which lowered cholesterol. But hey, we don't even know if that's really going to get us what we want, which is the, the reduction in the heart attacks and strokes. We don't know if this all this spending is going to be worth it. So they turned to the drug companies and said, prove it, you guys. Yeah, they did. And then, you know, what, what I think further hurt the chances of the PCSK9s is that their outcomes studies resulted in a, um, a you know, relatively low level of CV risk reduction or cardiovascular disease risk reduction of about 15% in both, in both uh, programs. And I think payers had expected uh, 20, 25, even 30 percent if these if these drugs were priced um, so high and um, for the excuse me, the uh, the injection, you know, for patients to tolerate an injection, they were going to need to deliver much greater CV risk, risk reduction benefits. And so I think now the original a, a price was. The original price was $14,000 a year, roughly for both of these. And uh, yes. the payers, they, in their response, while they waited around for the outcomes data, which, as you say, kind of underwhelmed them, uh, they, they put doctors through a whole lot of red tape. Prior authorizations, you know, can you prove to me that this patient has homozygous familial hypercholesterolemia, all that kind of stuff. It really depressed the market. These drugs didn't live up to their sales expectations. But now both companies have basically, um, you know, given some ground. They, they've cut their price a lot, down just below 6000 or so. Um, 5,800, yes. I think, is, is yes. around where it is. So um, now I think they're starting to see some more sales uptick, correct? Um, so barely, but unfortunately, the data that we've seen, Luke, um, has shown that the, the volume increase has not been enough to offset the price decrease. 
so our expectation, I think the, the general expectation in the investment community is that that those both companies will report lower revenue this year than they did last year, even as the volumes have increased slightly um, as a result of the of the price decreases. But, um, you know, the overall revenue um, is is just going to be lower this year, it appears. I think there's going to be lots of business school case studies written about this one. If there haven't been already, it, it will be one that people will study <laughs> for, for years. I, I think you're right. I think, and you know what it, I think what it argues for is anytime you're introducing a new product or in, in our, in our industry, a new therapy, you know, you have to get pricing and positioning right. Our, our head of commercial Mark Glickman always says pounds the table. You live with what you launch with. And so, um, you know, if, if you don't price your drug right from the start, if you don't position your drug right from the start, then, you, you know, you, uh, you're, you're going to have tremendous difficulty uh, reaching the success that, that you'd like to achieve. Now along comes Aspirion. You've had the benefit of watching this story play out from the sideline while you prepare uh, your own debut. Uh, on the one side of the market, you've got these cheap generic statins that are uh, going to be first-line therapy for a lot of people. They're going to be prescribed to the millions. Uh, works pretty well for a lot. Uh, on the other end, you've got really effective PCSK9 antibodies, maybe even an RNAi uh, coming down the pike here not too far away with more c- a convenient dosing profile, which you alluded to. Um, but maybe there's some, and you got this fish oil thing from Amarin. So you, you got a lot of options now. Um, you guys kind of fit here perhaps in the middle. Uh, how do you think about where you fit in this landscape? Yeah. So I think we, you know, on the one hand, we, we couldn't be more grateful for the positioning of the PCSK9s, of the injectable PCSK9s, both from a route of administration, but also from a pricing standpoint, as you highlighted. Um, and then, you know, secondly, you know, most of our team uh, was involved in the development and commercialization of statins. You know, we call ourselves the lipid management experts. And so we've had a front row view on this therapeutic area for more than for more than 30 years. Uh, we have a lot of gray hair around the office, I like to say. So, so we do see ourselves being positioned. We have, you know, whether it's payers or whether it's patients or physicians, we have always said our drugs, bepidoic acid and the bepidoic acid acetamide combination tablet, are to be used in patients who are taking their maximally tolerated statin. We always say if if you can tolerate a statin, you should take a statin. They're, as you said, they're they're safe. Um, we've got millions of years of patient experience. Um, they're, they're well tolerated. They are very efficacious. And perhaps most importantly in today's payer-constrained healthcare environment, they're incredibly inexpensive because they're all generic. So from a public health standpoint, we, like everyone else, want people to take their maximally tolerated statin. But when they're not getting enough LDL cholesterol lowering or the maximally tolerated statin is no statin at all, then we believe bepidoic acid and the bepidoic acid azetamide combination tablet should be the first option for those patients because they're oral once daily convenient therapies. They are 
uh, very efficacious. Our studies have shown them to be safe and well-tolerated in our clinical studies. And unlike statins, we don't have the muscle uh, aches and pains that are associated with statins. And uh, we don't, our drug does not worsen HbA1c, which has, again, um, has been associated with statins. So you actually see a little bit of improvement on the HbA1c. Not it's not enough to right. say that this is going to help your diabetes, really, but you know it's it's at least not it's going not in the wrong direction. <laughs> exactly, and and yeah. uh, I think our head of clinical development has called it a nudge, where uh, our drug seems to nudge HbA1c lower, which I think is 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 a great great descriptor. So our our drugs how really big how big do you the think middle. the 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 how big do you think the addressable patient population is here for people on their maximally tolerated statin, but not quite low enough on the LDL or or statin intolerance? How, how many people are in that bucket? Yeah, so, you know, when we talk to physicians, physicians describe it as sort of one or two of every 10 patients, so 10 to 20 percent of their patients. And this is cardiologists, primary care doctors, endocrinologists, um, you know, across the, the physician spectrum. The other way we've looked at it is uh, there's, there's something called the NHANES database, which is managed by the Centers for Disease Control. And that seems to suggest that there's about um, broader picture here, about 18 million patients in the U.S. alone that need additional LDL cholesterol lowering, either because their maximally tolerated statin is no statin at all, so they're not taking a statin. That's about half of those 18 million. And the other half is patients who are taking a maximally tolerated statin, in some cases, high intensity statin, like 80 milligrams Lipitor, but still needing additional LDL cholesterol lowering. And again, you know, we think patients and physicians will reach for these convenient, uh, cost-effective, you know, inexpensive drugs, oral drugs that, that uh, we're making available. Uh, before they they prescribe an injectable PCSK9. And again, there's a place in the therapeutic armamentarium for sure for PCSK9s, but it's just later in the process. I'm sorry, but go ahead. Yeah. Now there's no product that it fits exactly your profile. So there's still, you know, you're still trying to get your arms around, I think the exact numbers. Let's call it single digit millions <laughs> of patients. It's a lot um, of patients yeah. out there, potentially. Uh, but now what kind of pricing range, uh, are, are you looking at? I mean, I yeah. know that you're, you're crunching those numbers right now. It's a couple months away from launch. So yeah, you know, so we, yeah, you know, so it's interesting. We've done, we've done all kinds of pricing studies, Luke, and, you know, it's amazing, you know, the advice that you get from, you know, quote unquote, the outside experts. And, you know, I will say we have, we have thrown those pricing studies in the trash, um, unapologetically. And, and the reason for that is our pricing philosophy is best described as lipid management for everybody. We, you know, we haven't trademarked the phrase, maybe we should, but our, our, our philosophy has been all about access because, you know, we're, we're, if you will, we're taking the opposite approach, if you will, that uh, the PCSK9 sponsors did. You know, we're not developing medicines for the few, it's medicines for the many. So we have looked historically, and again, I mentioned how experienced our team is in this therapeutic area. And, you know, a couple of reference points here. One, you know, when atorvastatin went off patent in 2011, I think it was, it was priced at around $9 a day. When 
Azetamibe and Vitorin went off and Crestor went off patent in 2016 and 2017, they were priced at between nine and $11 a day. So starting um, more than, two, well, almost two years ago now, um, we have been publicly saying that our list price is going to be between nine and $10 a day. And um, and the reason for that is we've said, look, we want to price our drugs the way historical, oral, convenient LDL cholesterol lowering drugs have been priced. Um, you know, we will, you know, we will, of course, you know, work with payers and PBMs on the rebating and discounting and, and, and all of that. But, you know, we have strived from the beginning to drive the cost of goods. You know, of course, small molecule drugs are inexpensive to make to begin with, but uh, we have really made a, a, a conscious long-term effort to drive the cost even lower, as low as we possibly can, so that um, we can offer our medicines at, at a price that is accessible to as many patients as possible. Because, again, patients clearly can benefit if they can't afford the, the, the drugs. Clearly, you're still going to make a profit at this 9 or $10 a day price, which is... Yeah a whole lot less than 14,000 a year. It's a whole lot less than 5,800 a year. Yes. <laughs> uh, so you're going to compete in some respect here on price. I mean, you're offering people, you're trying to offer physicians, patients, the health system, a drug that gets your less, your cholesterol down a little lower than statins. Uh, it works for a whole lot of people who can't tolerate statins or, or aren't getting enough benefit for about the same price. That's right. And, and you know, Luke, I, you know, I want to be careful and say, you know, on the one hand, you know, we fully understand that we are running a business here and we have to provide a return to our shareholders. We fully well, understand what our responsibility is there. But I think we also well, it's are not trying the to same. balance that with the responsibility to the healthcare system overall, which is to say, you know, we need to be long-term successful here and make sure that we have a healthcare industry 10, 20 years from now that can afford the therapies that um, that will help patients live longer, better lives, we hope. Well, this is still a patented, branded medicine. I mean, when I say same price, it's the same price as the statins when they were still patented. It's still going to be more yes. expensive than um, you know cheap generic statins that people can can turn to today, and that will still be the go-to treatment for cardiologists uh, for a good long time. Yes. Um, okay, so um, you're uh, preparing to enter this market. Um, it. Um, what uh, what worries you? Is it is it this price question and access, or or other things that are loom large in your mind? Um, you, you know, so um, I, I think um, the the things that worry us are the the things that we can't control, that we can't manage. So you know, our team, um, I feel tremendous excitement about because we have. We have folks that have launched many drugs, most of them in uh, the cardiovascular space. So we feel very confident in our ability to execute. The thing that worries me, Luke, is the political rhetoric um, about um, our industry. Um, I, I think it is, you know, we, I think we can look across our industry and see that there have been bad actors, ir irresponsible actors. We're, we're trying to obviously 
um, speak to a different narrative and and try to make that more visible and more public. But I think you know the things that worry me are the things that I'm seeing on on CNBC, on CNN, on uh, reading in the paper about how uh, our our industry is is viewed by by our citizenry, which is uh, very yeah. poorly, and that that worries me because we are developing life saving medicines, and we have nothing but very good intentions here. So. Um, you know, as long as our behaviors follow our intentions, then I think we will be able to turn the tide on the narrative. But, you know, we have work to do and we want to be one of the companies that is saying the right thing, doing the right thing and, and following through in, in doing the right thing. Well, it worries me too, because there's a chance uh, of killing the golden goose. Um, there's a whole lot of innovation uh, coming through that pipeline, uh, this being one of them. Uh, and, um, you know, it would, it would be a shame if we, uh, aren't able to, uh, to get it to patients, um, yeah. a little bit on the strategy here in terms of how you commercialize this thing, you have gotten yourself a partner in Europe in Daiichi Sankyo. So they, um, will take the lead, I, I guess, yes. with marketing over there. You have a parallel, uh, regulatory filing over there that, that should, uh, come to fruition here in 2020 as well. I know you're talking to other partners in, in other countries outside the United States, but you have retained full United States rights for yourself. Uh, why have you decided to do that? So uh, we have talked to many companies um, uh, in, in the course of the last several years about our programs and, and also gotten to know uh, some of the cardiovascular franchises and again, I won't name names, of course, but Luke, we have not come across anybody that we think would be able to uh, make the right decisions about, you know, we were just talking about pricing and positioning in a way that will optimize the long-term value of this drug and really execute on a commercial launch plan. And I, I know that sounds incredibly bold, but you know what I would I would remind you and others of is when we started development of this drug back in 2009, you know we we got the same questions, which is how can a little tiny company I think we were ten or twelve people at the time develop a a, a drug an, LD, an oral LDL cholesterol lowering drug for this big market? You're going to have to run you know a several thousand patient phase three program. You're going to have to do a 10 to 15,000 patient CV outcomes trial. And my response was, you know, look, we are going to hire the experienced people. We are going to build a team that has done it before and will do it here. And that's, you know, that's exactly what we did on the clinical and development side. And it's exactly what we're in the process of doing on the commercial side. You know, as I mentioned earlier, our, our commercial team has launched several dozen drugs over the course of their careers. And, you know, they, they have not done it here, but the team has many worked together previously to successfully launch drugs. So, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, we have really high confidence in the pricing and positioning of our drugs. We have received very good feedback from payers and PBMs on the pricing and positioning of our drugs. So we, we have good confidence that we're going to get market access, formulary access at, 
in, a, in attractive places on formularies. And then it is it is the blocking and tackling of commercial launch, which, as I said, our, our commercial team has done many times before. So starts with pricing, pricing and positioning, and then it flows from there. And, and you're not going up against, you know, Pfizer and Merck and all these sales forces with 5,000 or 10,000 boots on the ground. I mean, that that is a thing of the past now. Uh, it really in, is. In cardiovascular you, disease. And so you so you're you're going to do this with like a lean and mean like strike force. Right. That's right. Well, and, you know, the model has changed. You know, just if, if you look back in 2008 at the last you know, first in class launch in the cardiovascular space. Um, J&J launched Zeralto in 2008 with a 300 person sales force. So big pharma has been doing this with hundreds of sales reps for the last almost 10 years. So, you know, we've, you know, I always say, you know, if you don't study history, you're doomed to repeat it, um, in, you know, obviously in a, in a negative way. But if you study history, you also learn what to do in addition to, to learning what not to do. So we've, you know, Luke, we, we have spent a good portion of the last year not only looking at the last eight or 10 cardiovascular disease drug launches, and learn what's worked, what hasn't worked, how big the sales forces are, what the commercial effort is required, what the pricing and, and positioning strategies have been. And then even more broadly, I think you've seen the narrative in the investment community about shorting the launch. Well, we, we've looked at the last 40, we've looked at the last 40 launches, initial launches by biotech company. And, and I would say, we know a lot about what has gone wrong as a result of that studying, and we will not be repeating. We will not be repeating those um, those mistakes. But like I said, I think you know fundamentally it starts with getting pricing and positioning right, and then executing from there. It's a story you don't see very often, where you, you come out with a with an aggressive, low price, high volume strategy. And your product is going to hit the market um, 2020, once we get the word from the FDA and the EU. And then you'll have cardiovascular outcomes data to fill out the label, strengthen your hand, hopefully, uh, by 2022. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So a couple years in. Um, this is going to be a really interesting one to watch. Uh, Tim Malabin, thank you so much for joining me today on The Long Run. Thank you. Luke, really enjoyed speaking with you again. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timberman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music comes from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode. <laughs>